Please be seated. Please turn your Bible to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And today we're going to study Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And if you've been with us over the last few months, as you remember, we've been doing the I am um, statements of Jesus seven times that Jesus uh, says, I am, and then he gives a description of who he is using some uh, descriptive metaphor or phrase to, to show uh, what it is that he has done in history, who it is uh, that he is as the divine son of God has come into the world. Um, and so we can see the comfort and the peace, the grace that we have in him. Well, this is my last of my I am sermons, but it's a little bit different. First of all, it's not in the book of John, as all the other I am statements are, um, that's because we're turning from the statements of where Jesus says who he is to really wrestling with the question of who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is in response to how he's revealed himself? It doesn't do us any good for uh, somebody to tell them about themselves if we just blatantly ignore it or we don't accept it or receive it. If I keep telling you, my name is Sean, and you keep calling me Timothy, I'll think, well, you know, we're, there's some sort of mix-up here. If my kids say, you know, they say, you know, you say you're my dad, but I'm not so sure I really want to listen to you, that doesn't do us much good either. If a husband says, you know, I know that uh, you are my wife, but I don't want those constraints, uh, that'd be a denial of commitment which he had made. If an employee walks into his employer and says, sorry, I, I don't care who you think you are, I'm going to do my own thing today, then he's not going to last long. But when somebody tells us who they are, is that declaration is connected with truth, uh, that what we do with that is very important. How we respond to that uh, is, is, is very important. And that's really important when we come to the person of Jesus himself. Again, seven times. He said, I am, inside the book of John. Seven times he showed us what he was like. Seven times he showed to us his purpose in this world. Seven times he showed us what he did for us for salvation. And it does us no good for him to tell us who he is if we don't then live in light of who he is. What good does it do us to know that he is the bread of life if we choose not to be satisfied in him? What good does it do us if he says he is the light of the world if we choose to live in darkness with the lights off? What good does it do to know that he is the door if we won't go in? What good does it do to know that he's a good shepherd if we won't listen for his voice? What good does it do to know that he is the resurrection and the life if we choose to live in sin and death? What good does it do to know he's the way, the truth, and the life if we choose another way? What good does it do us to know that he is a true vine if we won't draw our strength from him by faith? If Jesus is going to be anything helpful to us, if we're going to receive spiritual strength from him, if we want to be new, then we need to receive him as he's revealed himself. Not only is he uh, the bread of life, but he's my bread. He's my satisfaction. Not only is he light to the world, but he's the light to my life. 
Not only is the door, but he's the door that I've gone through to know the promises of God. Not only is he the good shepherd, but he has brought me into his flock, and to him I belong. Not only is he the resurrection of life, but I find my life in him. Not only is he the way, but he's the way I choose, and I know where I'm going in him. And not only is he the vine, but I abide in him, and I find my strength in him for life's challenges. So Jesus, today, in our passage, is going to ask his disciples a really important question. Who do you say that I am? All right, so that brings us to our passage, Matthew chapter 16. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'll read uh, verses 13 through 20, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. This is God's word. May it his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. So in the Bible, when Jesus tells us who he is, do we receive it? One of the best ways to know that people are really listening to you is have them repeat back to you what you just said, right? And uh, parents do this. Now, what time did I tell you to be home tonight? You know, just to be sure that, they, that they've got it. What were you supposed to do after you turn on the oven? Um, Jesus is having them repeat back to him what he has been teaching and showing them for months now. Do they really understand who he is? And isn't this important for us? Because it's important for us to be able to accurately identify Jesus. The way that we answer this question that he asks in here, who do people say that I am, that will affect the way we live. Rightly understanding Jesus is key to knowing his power and to know his power and to see it work within us. Now the devil doesn't want us to understand this. The world doesn't want us to understand it either. The world, the devil, they portray Jesus maybe as as a good man, maybe as an evil man, maybe as a spiritual leader, but they would do everything to distract you away from who he really is. Because when you underestimate Jesus, then then the world, the devil, they can keep you under their control. They know you won't trust him. They know you won't obey him. They know you won't repent of sin and choose, choose to follow after him. They know that doubting him will leave you locked up into darkness without purpose, joy, and love, and all the things that God has for you in him. It's only when you know who Jesus is based on his self-revelation that we know then true freedom. When we underestimate Jesus, we don't obey his commands. We trust ourselves. We skip out on praying and the big decisions of life. And we abandon our commitments instead of growing through them. 
We underestimate Jesus when we think that our education or our psychology or our self-help or our drugs or a better government, that they will solve our better and, and our, our basic problems. That's because when we have a weak Savior, people will have a weak faith. If we have a weak Savior, we have a weak faith. If his power is limited and if he can't help, then why would I go to him for help? Just makes logical sense. If Jesus really can't help me, then why would I even go to him? But if, if he is God's chosen Messiah, God's Savior, then how can we not trust him? And so the faith that changes us, the faith that has power with it, is one that is built on a right understanding of who Jesus is. So we understand him, his power becomes available to us. He's a powerful Savior, and we must rest in his, in his power. All right, so what are we going to do in response to Jesus' true identity? We want to look at that. What do we do in response to Jesus' true identity? As he's revealed himself in the I Am statements, as he's shown us his life throughout Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, and as he calls them to understanding of who he is here, how do we respond? Well, the first thing, we want to get the full story about Jesus. We want to get the full story about Jesus. Now, in 2013, I had the chance to go with Pastor Doug and a group over to Israel. And it helped me to imagine the scene that we're seeing here. And so if I can, hopefully I can paint a good picture for you. Um, you know, we'd look back at verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. And, you know, I'd say, where was Jesus? Where was Jesus um, during the scene? Uh, verse 13 says that he was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25, it's only 25 miles away from a strong Jewish community. But still, Caesarea Philippi was dedicated to the worship of Greek gods. Although this is a part of Israel's original territory, uh, which they were promised from God, and they even conquered, that they weren't ever really able to get rid of the idolatry inside of this area. Even even during Jesus' time, it was not highly influenced by, uh, by Jewish religious thinking. I've, having been there, it's a gorgeous place. It's full of rolling hills, mountains, rock faces, and there's in the middle of it this permanently flowing uh, uh, stream of spring water, right? It just comes out just straight out of the rocky ground. You know, it's not trickling down from creeks and streams, but it just comes up out of the ground. And then it flows this um, beautiful, beautiful stream. And back then, if you think about that, you know, people would not have known where that came from. You know, they would have thought, where does that water come from? Well, it comes from the underworld. And that, you know, religiously and and superstitiously thinking then that, well, this is a portal, a gateway for the Greek gods to travel into our world. So again, you see where that would lead to, um, you know, a a superstitious uh, belief system and 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 idolatry during that time. I mean, we know where the water comes from. It, the mountains around it, they soak in the water. They form underground pools, and those pools end up feeding this stream. And it just happens to come up right around this place where, where Jesus was. It says, Aria Philippi. But they would have thought that it was a gate to the underworld. Now, the area was dedicated to one of the Greek gods, and the Greek god named Pan. The Greek god of Pan, supposedly the, the god of the wild Shepherds, flocks, music, as well as fertility. And supposedly Pan would regularly travel to our world through a cave that was there at Caesarea Philippi. In fact, before the the Romans conquered it and before they renamed it, the area was called Panius. 
It was in honor of, of their God. Now, because people thought that it was a gateway to the underworld, where the gods would come back and forth through, um, it became a place of idol worship and even offerings. People made offerings for Pan to return and to give them favor. And often, some of those offerings were crass sexual behaviors that would encourage him to come back, including prostitution and things I read about that I can't even begin to mention. Now, you can imagine Jesus, right, Jesus, meek and mild, leading his disciples into Caesarea Philippi. You can just imagine the shock. Did Jesus really bring us here? What is it we see around us? Asking, uh, what, you know, seeing the prostitution that's there. You know, why would he bring him to a place like that? I have, two, I have two thoughts. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus' greatest opposition usually wouldn't come in places like this among ordinary pagans. No, his greatest opposition came from the religious Jewish leaders around him. And so this was a place to get away. It was a place to, to focus on the disciples and what they learned, what they'd been seeing Jesus. It was a great time to ask this question. It shows the value of going on a retreat, setting ourselves apart just to read and to pray and to think and to talk things through. That out of the limelight, out of the regular challenges of their ministry, they're considering what God has done. But on the other hand, Caesarea Philippi would have provided a great example for why Jesus came into the world. The dark idolatry of the area it showed the importance of his ministry and his point to make. So what does Jesus do here in Caesarea Philippi? Verse 13, he asks them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus starts by asking the opinion of the others. Why does he ask what the crowds think about? You know, we don't usually take kids to make their decisions based on what the opinion of other people are, right? Um, but, you know, he wanted to make a point to them and he wanted them to contrast his real mission of why he really came into this world with the wrong mission and the wrong identity that others were attributing to him. Because people didn't always understand Jesus. They still don't understand Jesus. People still don't get why he came. He knows that misunderstandings abound. I mean, for any of us, we could go to our workplace tomorrow or Tuesday, and we could ask people around us, you know, who do you think Jesus is? And You'd be surprised at the number of answers that you get of, of what people think, what people believe. Jesus knows that if people fail to rightly understand him and his purpose, they're going to fail to see what he offers into the world, fail to see the power he brings. We see the answer the disciples give then in verse 14. The disciples said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, these are the answers that Jesus' followers would have given, the crowds, the, the, the supportive crowds that were around him. His enemies didn't say these sort of things about him. I mean, just want to remind us of that. His enemies called him the devil. His enemies called him a false prophet. They called him a blasphemer. Uh, plenty of people hated him, and they had nothing good to say about him. But his followers tended to say that he was a prophet from God. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, these were all prophets. Prophets had that responsibility to, to speak the word of God into people's lives, to call them to repentance and faith, to show them the kingdom that God was going to send into the world and to help them prepare for that and understand what it was it that God was doing in this world. Each one of them had a key place. 
to help understand what God was doing in redemptive history. And each one had a different degree of success in turning people back towards God. But none of those answers are right. Jesus points us to that in, in the story here, and the, and, the, and the disciples know it. He even asks him another question in verse 15. He says, who do you say that I am? It's because something is missing in their answer. Jesus was a prophet. That's true. But he's more than a prophet. The disciples needed to see that. It's important that when we only see part of what Jesus came to do, then we fail to understand everything that he offers us. A lot of people think that Jesus was a good man and that he was a good moral teacher. And, and those things are true. He was. He was a good man. He was a good moral teacher. But he is so much more. So we need to take time to learn about who he is. Too many people understand Jesus at only a superficial level. And as a result, their faith is only superficially deep. We need to think about how we learn about Jesus. Where does he reveal himself? He's revealed himself in the scriptures. He's given us this. You know, the world is not always helpful in understanding who Jesus is. In fact, many inside the world would distract us from that core message that's there. Your unbelieving Bible philosophy professors, that History Channel lesson, the, na- the latest National Geographic, not helping to understand Jesus' life like reading Jesus' words for yourself. You can't just learn about somebody from their critics. You need to take time to hear from them directly. That's why the Bible is so important. It gives us a chance to hear directly from Jesus. It shows us the importance of reading the Bible. I, I remember when I came to faith in Christ, and you know, I was, I was investigating, I was learning about Jesus for the first time, and I remember reading about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I was reading through these books of the Bible, you know, from total unbelief, I, I thought, this man is amazing. This man is different. He has something to say that's important for me, and I want to know more about him. So I, I would encourage anyone who's curious about the Christian faith to read the Gospels, to start in the book of Matthew, and just keep reading all the way through until you finish the book of John, because you'll be amazed at what Jesus says about himself, about the work that he de- does, about what he offers this world, and how he changes this world. It was, it was transforming for me. I believe it would be transforming for you. If you lack power in your life, in your Christian faith, uh, get to know Jesus better. Get to know him rightly. Take him at his word. Understand why he came, who he is, and live like those things are true. That's how we know his power. Know Jesus. Know the full story about Jesus. That leads us to my second point, if you're following along. Our second point is because we have a powerful Savior, we must know Jesus personally. We must know him personally. When Jesus asked in verse 5, who do you say that I am? He asked the most important question that we can wrestle with. He addresses them at the level of their own personal belief. I mean, your belief about Jesus matters more than the opinions of others. You will not be saved from sin because of your parents' faith, or your friend's faith, or your wife's faith, or the president's faith, or even my faith. You can only be saved by having the right trust in Jesus Christ yourself. The judgment of God is personal with our own personal sins, our own, our own personal responsibility before him. And salvation is also given personally. 
is a person believes in Jesus Christ. You personally need to believe and you personally need to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the scripture says, that if we believe in our heart that, that Jesus is Lord and um, if we confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, Romans 10 says, you will be saved. Jesus says in John 17, 3, that eternal life is knowing the true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You won't be saved through anybody else's faith, only through your own. Now, if you look back to verse 16, then Peter answers this question of Jesus. Peter jumps in to answer and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter accurately sees who Jesus is. We see it in Jesus' response to him. Now, one thing we need to remind ourselves is that Christ is not part of Jesus' name, right? It's not his last name, like my last name is Whitenack, right? It's not his last name, um, but it's like a title, like Mr. or Mrs. or, or King or Lord. In this case, the word Christ can be translated Messiah, can be translated Savior. We would call him Messiah Jesus, we call him Savior Jesus or Redeemer Jesus. You know, this is Jesus' title um, describes who he is and, and what he's done, how we respect and respond to him. And we remember what people called Jesus. They called him the prophet, but Peter properly identified Jesus as the Christ. It's because being Messiah is much, much more than being just a prophet, the prophet had an important job. Yeah, you know, speaking uh, about the great kingdom to come. But a Messiah is the one who brings the kingdom to us. He brings it to us. John the Baptist promised a kingdom. Elijah led the people to fight for a kingdom. Jeremiah lamented the laws of a kingdom. But Jesus Christ came to bring the kingdom of God to us. He came to change lives. He, he came to change people. He came to change families, to change nations. He doesn't just point to change. He brings the change. He's one who came to change the world. And so when we speak about Jesus being the Christ or the Messiah, we recognize that in that role, he had three primary jobs, three primary roles to do. He was a prophet, yes. He brought God's word to us, communicated God's word to us so we could believe but he had two more jobs which are important. He was also a priest, and he was also a king. As a priest, he would die for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved as a just punishment for our sins, making an offering of atonement for God and securing our forgiveness. And he prays for us, continues to pray for us even now. He's a priest, but he's also a king. He rules this new kingdom. He rules it now, he will rule it in the future, and in the end, he will destroy evil, and he will protect his people. And so you can see why the answers that people were giving about Jesus just being a prophet, they were missing so much. You know, they were missing the fact that Jesus would bring that kingdom to them, that he's a priest, would bring forgiveness of sin, and that he was going to come as a king. It's the same thing with people who say that Jesus was just a good teacher, it's the same thing for people who say, you know, I just want the fire insurance of Jesus, of Jesus paying the penalty for my sin, but I don't really want to follow him. You have to see Jesus for who he is. He is prophet and priest and king. He's all three at the same time. Amen. He's the power to bring God's kingdom to you. And he alone has the power to get you into God's kingdom. It's, only, it's something that only he has.
All right, so let's look at verse 17 then. Verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter's answer, and he congratulates him, right? Look at what he says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We see the source of this understanding. It comes from God. God opened Peter's mind to these truths. I mean, how does anybody see who Jesus really is, how, how he's more than what the magazines and the documentaries uh, say he is? How does anyone see that Jesus is more than the doubters and the haters say he is? How does anyone escape the unbelief of parents and friends? How does anyone still believe in Jesus after other Christians may give him such a poor testimony? How do people see? It's because God opens their eyes to see who he is. And if God shows you who Jesus is, that's the time to respond. Receive Christ as Lord. Receive him as Savior. Confess him for who he is. That day in Caesarea Philippi was Peter's chance to recognize him. And today, right now, is your chance to recognize Jesus for who he really is. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to be the leader of your life. Tell him that you need him. You have to recognize him personally. Our third point so we hit our third point this morning. It shows the importance of this confession to our world and our place in this world as followers of Christ. Our third point is because we have a great and powerful Savior, we must live in courageous contrast to the evil of the world. Live in courageous contrast to the evils of this world. Look what Jesus says in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's look at some of the words that Jesus has used here. Uh, the first thing we see is this is the first time he mentions the church. This is the first time he talks about the church in his life. I mean, it's you know, pretty unique in the teaching of Jesus. The Greek word that he uses here is the word ekklesia, and it literally means called out ones. People who have been called out from the world to belong to God's kingdom. People who gather together for worship and discipleship. You know, as I was thinking about my sermon, as I saw how many people were here, and, you know, I, I was praising God when I was here and I was looking around. I'm going to tell you why. Because you know what? We're pretty full. Actually, some people couldn't find seats over here and they had to move to a different place. And I thought, wow, we're pretty full. And I'd say this, we're pretty full for what? For Father's Day. I have this observation. You know what? A lot of people come for Mother's Day. It's kind of full. But I have this observation. A lot of times, it's like, you know what? What do, what do we want to do for Father's Day? Hey, let's go out on the boat. Let's go fishing. Let's have a grill. Let's go do these things. But you know what doesn't fit in? Oftentimes, it's church. You know, but we know, you know, what is leadership? I mean, godly leadership is leading people as we're called in obedience to God to know and to serve God. And I'm just so encouraged to see so many men here leading their families, uh, leading their uh, children and families into the worship of God. How important is that? Because we're the church. The ones that are called out from the world, called together for the worshiping, the glorifying of, of God. And so I was so blessed this morning uh, to see your leadership in these things. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says that the church includes people who turn away from the world with its destructive behaviors. Instead of, um, in, instead of the world and loving the world, to worship and love God, to worship and, and, and to love our neighbors and to do good works. 
First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's done. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We declare his excellencies. We worship him, praise him. We're created to do. And Jesus said he's going to build those kind of people. He'll build his church. Where, and where will he build his church? Verse 18 tells us that he's going to build it on this rock. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on that idea and the rock, and I don't agree with some of the teaching that says that this verse makes Peter the first pope of the church. I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, many believe that the rock refers to Jesus. Most, many Protestants believe that the rock refers to Peter's confession. Um, there's beliefs there which you can study and learn at in a lot of our, our, our classes. Uh, Sunday school classes especially. But as I was thinking about this passage, I was reading some commentators on it, I I just came to think that, you know, Jesus is saying this, is is this very rocky place, um, this Caesarea Philippi, you know, out of this is a spring which just really comes out of a rock um, in order to bring water into the area. And I thought, you know, what if this rock refers to that very spot that Jesus is standing? Jesus is referring to this is Caesarea Philippi. You know, what if that's the rock? On this rock, I will build my church. Right? Remember what he also says in this? That Jesus speaks about the gates of hell. Well, Caesarea Philippi had a cave that people believed was the gateway to the Greek god of Pan. It was full of prostitution, godlessness, and great moral evil. I mean, it was a, a spiritually dark place. And so Jesus is saying here that he's going to build his church right in the face of the evils of this world. He's going to build his church right in the face of idolatry. Right on the, you know, right at the very gates of the underworld. Right in front of demonic worship of the god Pan. Right in the face of this false superstition. Right in the face of this human trafficking, the poverty, and the persecution, he's going to build his church right in the face of the false promises that the world makes. He's building his church in front of the gates of the underworld to bring light into the darkest of places. And that's where he wants his church. That's where he wants Peter. That's where he wants you and I. He builds his church right in the most uncomfortable of places. It isn't just there in Caesarea Philippi. I mean, it's next to every place where sin and evil is present. I mean, it's everywhere. He's going to build his church everywhere. Every city, every town, every nation on this earth where sin and evil is present, there's to be a church which is declaring the truth of God, of his gospel, and of his love and his justice. As people enter that church, the same way that Peter did, By confessing Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ is that rock which we build our lives, we build our church, and we ground ourselves in that rock through the confession of Christ. That church stands then as a force against evil. It stands only because it's grounded in Jesus Christ. It doesn't stand on its own. The church of Christ is only as strong as her dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And once the church starts to deviate away from that word of God and that confession, all the benefits she could bring, those get lost. That's why truth and doctrine matters. That's why purity of conduct also matters 
You know, it's such a, a great grief when evil comes into the church. I mean, the church is to be a place for people to flee evil and not to be victimized by it. That's why the church is to be a place free of abuse, moral evil. That's what we work for. We've spoken about the church. We've spoken about the rock. I want you to know something else about Jesus' words. He encourages a mindset of offense. He calls the church to be a strong witness against evil. In verse 18, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Notice he doesn't tell his disciples to hide behind the gates of the church, to disengage for the world, but to build a church and to worship and live right in the face of the gates of hell. He calls his church to be a to be to he calls his church to a confident defiance of the world by confessing and worshiping him instead. He calls his church to a confident defiance of the world by confessing and worshiping him instead. Right to be present in the places where the world needs truth and life and hope and love, to make him known, to make truth known, to make light known and righteousness and hope, that's, that's our job. I remember a few years ago I was doing some work at a local Starbucks and I was talking to a fellow and he was talking um, about his uh, just being disgruntled with living in Virginia. And um, he was talking about, you know, I want to move out of Virginia. Our laws are too oppressive. They're getting worse. And I want to live in a place with greater freedoms. And I was thinking about that in light of the calling of the Church of Christ. You know, around us, you know, you may see growing ungodliness. You may see uh, growing uh, difficulties, but isn't that exactly the place where the light of the gospel is needed? Isn't that the place where, where light and hope is needed, where there is difficulty and oppression and injustice? Isn't that the place where the church of Christ is to be a, a community um, which shows something different to the world and calling the, those outside to, to faith in Christ and repentance to continue to, to, to build? I mean, that's, that's, that's our calling. And so what's the most powerful weapon for good in that? I mean, it's our Savior. I mean, the thing that attacks the gates of hell isn't that Christians have a better morality or that we are better people. It's really at root that there is a Savior who has given himself for his people. He is the king. And that's why Peter's confession matters. Confessing that Jesus Christ is our hope, even when we're in the toughest of situations, I mean, that is a powerful message for good. And so for us, what's needed for us is to believe that gospel. There's no shame in professing the gospel because we believe it is the power of God for salvation for all who would believe in it. In our willingness to convert evil, we do it with the hope of Jesus Christ. So we don't need to compromise with the world in relativizing ethics. We need to be willing to address sin, even if we are laughed at, even if it means we're called intolerant. I mean, distorted Christian faith focuses on political correctness for the fear of offending against truth. A politically correct church doesn't attack the gates of hell but capitulates under it. Does it accept sin instead of confronting sin? Accepting sin instead of presenting Christ and his hope. Leaving people in a destructive life pattern. It's a hollow kind of love. And so the church becomes a staging ground for good to equip God's people and to send them into the world. It's, it's not a fortress to hide in, but it's it's an outpost that declares that evil and sin has had its day and it has no future. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we do matters. Even our gathering together for worship matters. It matters what we do after that as well, that we go out and share the gospel. And as the gospel spreads, it changes families, it changes communities, it changes nations. I mean, every baptism is an attack against the gates of hell. Every spouse who turns from unfaithfulness to faithfulness in Jesus' name is an attack upon the very gates of hell. Every missionary who's sent into the world forsaking uh, the, the, the wealth of this world to go make Christ known overseas is an attack against the gates of hell. Every decision that a mother makes for life is an attack against the gates of hell. Every time a person repents of a sin, the idolatry and the lust of their own life is an attack against the gates of hell. That's why missions matters. That's why we go out to support work of CVGI, the Central Virginia Justice Initiative, and exciting things that they're doing there. Helping Choices Pregnancy Center and ministering to women with unplanned pregnancies, with our the abundant ministry, working with adoption and fostering in our area. Seeing college ministry established brings Christian light to the college campus. That's why things like the Rappahannock Celebration matters. You know, chance for us to, to share the hope of Christ, to bring a friend together with us. Especially want to encourage young people, young adults, young couples, go and bring a friend with you. It's a, it's a good chance to, with you know, an evening of fun, but also to, uh, good, and good music to ensure that people hear the hopeful message of the gospel. And then as believers go out, the gates of hell can't stop the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. That's the, that's the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that's hope to the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ did his work in the face of great evil. God, even here, he's discipling his, he's, he's training his disciples, even the story we just read today. And Father, reminding us of this call that we have. And we ask, Lord, that he would continue that work against the evil of this world, and he would use the church for that purpose. He would use us for that purpose. God, we have places in our lives that, that we may even feel constrained and broken down that we're losing the battle in. Father, give us Christ. Our world has strongholds of unbelief. God, give us Christ. Because we know whether it's our own personal life or whether we know it's the world around us that Jesus Christ can penetrate through them. Father, we know that he has. We've seen it in every single person who's professed faith in Jesus Christ. We see the power of the gospel. We worship you for that. And would you continue to show your power, your grace, your love in us and through your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.